welcome to A Day in the Life of a Business Analyst. I'm Sandeep Mysore. In this series, we explore the lives of business analysts, or BAs for short, from across a number of different industries and specializations. We will hear about the tools, techniques, and methodologies that BAs use in their day-to-day work life and get a glimpse into what it is to be a business analyst. In this podcast, I caught up with James King, an alumnus of UNSW Business School's MBT program and currently an Agile coach at Elmo Cloud HR in Payroll. We spoke about Agile-based methods and the history of Agile thinking and specifically doing a deep dive into the Agile Scrum methodology. We also spoke about how organizations can transition to an Agile mindset and some of the challenges that they face in this journey. We also delved into some of the common misconceptions, interpretations and misimplementations of Agile methodology. And finally, James offered some tips to graduate students who are planning to work in Agile Scrum teams. We hope you enjoy this episode. Very pleased to have James uh, King here with us. Uh, James is an Agile coach and he has uh, recently transitioned to uh, a new role at Elmo Cloud HR and Payroll. I I will leave to you to give a more accurate introduction about yourself and if you could share with us your own personal journey as a practitioner uh, and and how you are, how you've come to be in this role that you are in now, uh, that will be, uh, that'll be great. Great. So I actually was a business analyst uh, last century um, <laughs> when people were allegedly doing waterfall projects, but often they were doing uh, panic-driven development, I guess you'd call it, or trust some heroes to deliver. And I got involved in process change using something called TQM that I'm not sure if it would be in the history of the course, but it was before Lean. And then I got into infrastructure in IT. I won't explain the journey, but I became an infrastructure project manager and a data data conversion manager. And we did what I think still were very good waterfall projects. But if you look at the waterfall methodology, we were far more iterative and we were far more rapid cycles and we were far more learning as we went, but we needed the plan structure. Uh, coming into this century, I got involved in more business roles. My job title was no longer BA, but I found exactly the same skills were needed in every job I had because the biggest problem I was encountering were people not understanding what they were working on or understanding the problem they were solving. So whilst in the business I got involved uh, in being a client of IT and they were doing some Agile and then I got involved in Agile. And I remember telling people that a lot of it was common sense that we'd been doing for a long time. But to be honest, I'd probably missed some of the subtleties about the importance of testing as a source of learning rather than just validation. So in my waterfall projects, we would scope out what was needed. We would know there was some gap in our understanding and then we would test it and assume that we were right and therefore the more effort we did up front, the better. In Agile, when I initially did it, I would do a series of mini waterfalls. If people have looked up what a sprint is, I'd actually scope it out, design it, test it in two weeks. What I learned early on, though, was that actually testing drives analysis. And I don't mean IT testing. I mean a hypothesis and then discover whether it's true. So that changed the structure of analysis for me, uh, but still left the problem that teams often sprinted along uh, not really understanding what problem they were solving. So a lot of the core problems were still the same. And 
being an agile coach, I then went from organisation to organisation, helping them improve their culture, their methodology. Then I became a IT manager and had to practice what I preach. Then I went back into agile coaching to help others do the work. Uh, that's me. Great, great. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, you, you, met, you mentioned quite a few uh, important tidbits there, James, and I'm sure we will come to some of those issues that you raised in that brief introduction. Um, I'm, I'm uh, very curious about, um, um, you know, what does it uh, mean to be an agile coach? What does it involve? Could you, sure. uh, could you expand on that job function a bit more? Yes, it's a title that's a bit like the title BA. A lot of people use it loosely. Mm. Um, to me... To explain an Agile coach, I'll have to give you a very quick summary that we can come back to of what Agile is. Uh, a lot of people say Agile is a mindset or an attitude, which it is. Uh, and therefore, if I'm an Agile coach, I'm helping people not so much with a methodology, I'm helping create things like psychological safety and team collaboration and an attitude that the developers, the business analysts, the business people can start with a hypothesis that's wrong and then validate it. Uh, we say safe to fail, but what I'd really say is designed to learn. So we learn as we go. So part of my work is helping people accept that kind of attitude of collaboration or of testing. The other way to look at Agile, though, is a toolkit uh, or a methodology, and a lot of my work is to help people avoid the myths and understand the tools so they can apply it to their work. So a lot of my work is to help people understand Scrum is great, but how do we apply it here when we're a production support team? Um, the Agile Manifesto is very sensible, but what does it mean in practice when we've got distributed teams in different countries? So I'm helping them apply a tool set to their context. Oh, okay, great. Um, um, uh, the, the lingering question that I had when you were describing uh, the Agile coach was, you know, what's the difference between a scrum master and an Agile coach? Is this a, you know, a scrum master at a, uh, a, a, with a wider visibility within the organization? Or how, do the, how do the two roles relate to each other? So we will... It doesn't have to be now. I, I think that's an important one to ask. Because, yes, yes. Yeah, it is. We will come to, definitely come to that, James. Uh, in, in, yeah. in, in our, I'll, I'll bring that up when we dev, uh, do a deep dive into Agile Scrum more specifically. Uh, James, uh, what would uh, really benefit our students is for you to uh, now give us a history of uh, um, a history lesson on Agile-based methods. So uh, why are we here? Why are we doing uh, you know Agile-based? Uh, why do we have this Agile mindset now? And how have we, what's the path that practitioners have taken to come to where they are today? So if you could give us a, 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 a very brief history of Agile that Yes. That would be great. So uh, Agile, the name came from 17 people who literally went up a mountain to a ski resort and came down Agile <laughs> uh, in February 2001. And they produced something called the Agile Manifesto. And I think that's the first point where people started using the term Agile. But it wasn't when they had invented Agile. Some of the practitioners who got together were already using something called Scrum. Others were using something called Extreme Programming. And both of them had been around for a number of years. So what had actually happened is that people were starting to run projects in IT technology in the same way they'd run construction projects. And they had collaborated at the beginning, they had designed and then they had built. And there was a movement of people who effectively said that software is not the same as building a bridge. 
our approach is based on the wrong industry and we've missed the point. And some of the movements that created that was extreme programming. Uh, if you ask developers what how they would run their project, they said, we really want to be sure of what we're doing. We need a clear understanding, good testing. We need collaboration. And then uh, when you learn about Lean, some people had applied that to product development and called it Scrum. So people were starting to use iterative, incremental development where they could learn more as they went than they knew at the start and where it wasn't predictable what work you would do. You needed to really use your brain and understand the work. So learning was happening at the same time as creation. So in February 2001... Some leading practitioners got together not expecting to do anything this significant. They just wanted to share their own learnings on what they had in common. And what they had in common was an understanding that they need to meet the customers, uh, create value for the customer, that it's the interaction of the people that creates value and that you have to adapt as you go. So they came up with some principles which then in technology really took off. Uh, so Agile then got its a really solid grounding in IT, uh, partially because people had tried to build two big, slow projects, partially because knowledge work is different to construction. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't really invent anything in February 2001. They more encapsulated the opinions that were forming in the community. And a lot of their ideas came out of the principles of lean and a lot of their ideas came out of the principles of modern management theory and empowerment in the 1980s. And those applied well in technology. Uh, Rolling forward nearly 20 years, uh, Agile has matured a lot and it has also picked up a lot of overhead. It used to be eager practitioners would get together and agree to do Agile, pitch it to their management and just do it. Uh, But now people have tried to formalise it and embed it into the business structure and build leadership around it. So what we see is Agile now has evolved beyond a team building a product to an organisation aligning to create value. So the principles are still the same, Mm -hmm. uh, but when somebody says Agile, they may well mean a development team building a product. They may well mean an organisation or a department trying to create value together. And therefore, there's no single definition of what Agile is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would advise people to just look it up in the dictionary. Um, and Agile actually means quick and easy of movement. So I would say Agile is a mindset and a toolkit that tries to make it quick and easy for the people in the team to do their work. And that's consistent through all the, all the themes. It's based on the assumption people want to do good work. It's based on the assumption they'll do good work if we make it easy for them. Mm. And there'll be consistent problems around collaboration, lack of understanding. Right, right. Thanks. I hope uh, that makes sense. Oh, that, 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 uh, that, that definitely makes sense. Uh, could you, uh, uh, you know, spell out a bit more as to, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, building a software product is not the same as building an yeah. apartment complex. And we were drawing on the wrong archetypes to, uh, you know, to work on, uh, uh, you know, building software, uh, software products. Uh, so what kind of, what kind of typical problems were, uh, comp- you know, teams running into when, when they were, when they were adopting the earlier approach? Uh, um, sure. And what I'm also curious to know is, uh, has that approach completely died out? Uh, does that approach continue to linger? And, and, and if so, in what context is it still applicable? Good question. So it's still there. Uh, if I look at the what was happening, 
some people ran small projects where four or five people were working together and the best methodology was quite literally to sit down together and work out what to do and make it up as you go. Uh, but that didn't work for large construction projects because there were too many people involved. So what I think about Waterfall, which was working well in some contexts and creating huge issues in others, is that it was optimised for complicated problems where one person can't understand the whole problem, but together we can analyse it and where there are standards we need to adhere to. And if people have learned about the waterfall method, I think actually it's really the engineering method. If you ask an engineer how to build a bridge, they don't build one lane across a river and then ask people what they want. They study the river, they study the type of traffic. So the kind of things that we still need waterfall for are where we have engineering standards, uh, where we have complicated problems that need to be analysed before we start. Uh, that wasn't working for a lot of things where people were building products based on assumptions and they were showing them to clients and clients didn't care about the engineering. So around the year 2000, probably in the 1990s, it became easy to build a computer. It became easy to construct an IT program. It's very hard to understand what the user's needs were and to integrate with other systems. So what was happening is people were taking six months to build something when user needs were changing every two months. So they couldn't keep up. So what Agile did is it brought in collaboration and rather than trying to build a methodology for a team to work together, they tried to build a team and then find a methodology to meet their needs. Mm. If you look at something like Scrum, it's literally designed to assist collaboration and to help the team understand their work and make it visible. Uh, so that was one thing. The other thing that Agile did, though, is it's optimised for projects where there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, engineers like to remove the uncertainty before they build a bridge. Yeah. However, police officers, doctors um, and scientists can't remove the uncertainty before they start their work, so they have to define what they think is certain and what's not and then run experiments. So Agile, I would claim, is suited to projects which you can solve using the scientific method, mm. which means you define a hypothesis and test it. And if you look at all the successful Agile projects, it's valuable where you need to test a hypothesis to learn. Mm. So you want to build cheaply so you fail cheaply because a scientist doesn't want to build a bridge to see if it'll stay up. Sure. Um, so where Agile then got into trouble uh, is where there were projects which were so big and complicated and uncertain that if you built them using engineering principles, you built on the wrong assumptions. And if you built using the scientific method, you effectively built a series of tactical solutions without understanding the whole problem. Mm -hmm. And we call those projects doomed. Uh, but others would call it portfolio or program management, which just means breaking it down into bite-sized chunks so you can mm -hmm. use a method to solve. Mm -hmm. So you might use design thinking to understand your user needs, agile to validate them with prototyping and then building, but you might still use um, some waterfall techniques to take an off-the-shelf system and do an RFP or a tender before you buy it. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's so long answer to a simple question. But <laughs> people were failing in projects because they thought they had to understand all the assumptions before they started when the problem they were solving was evolving as they worked or when they rolled out a solution that actually changed right. expectations. And we're... Collaboration was more important than structured planning and delivery.
Great, great. Thanks, thanks, James. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, very curious to also, you know, pick your brain and understand how um, complex projects can be built using uh, agile methods. So how, how, how is that done? Because uh, there, there is a lot of, uh, uh, you know, when I try to look up uh, information on agile scrum, you know, there's a, there are a lot of claims that well, you know what, agile scrum can also be used to build complex pro- uh, complex projects. It's a misconception that well, agile can only work for uh, you know you know co-located teams uh, you know working on very small yeah. projects so it would, would be great to discuss that as well as we move along um, now uh, I think this uh, we, we've uh, I think we've set the stage for to, to do a more deeper dive into a specific uh, implementation of the agile mindset and in this course we are looking at agile scrum specifically uh, so uh, if, if you could uh, give us uh, you know probably an introduction uh, to agile scrum and uh, also maybe uh, give us an example of an Agile Scrum project mm-hmm. that you've been involved with, how the team was structured, you know, how the project was kicked off and probably describe to us uh, in vivid detail how a sprint looks like. You know, that, that, would, be, that, that would be great. Yes, I will. So Scrum started last century. I won't go into all the history because people can look that up. Uh, but essentially, two people got together and said, I think we're running projects incorrectly. One of them was looking at lean and one was looking in the Air Force, if people want to Google it, at something called UDA, which was how to outthink opponents. And both of them were saying that traditional approaches were too slow and they were too focused on locking down requirements. So they said the starting point must be that you have a team and a common purpose or a vision. They said if you don't have a team, you don't need what we're going to call Scrum. And if you don't have a vision, stop until you create one. Mm. However, they said the vision might be uh, correct based on what you know now, but it might change in six weeks or in eight weeks when you learn more. So using the scientific method, you state the vision or purpose and then you test it as you go along so you can see if you're hitting the right direction. And to do that, you break the work into a series of sprints Uh, You could call it a week or a fortnight. I'd call it a structured experiment. So to understand whether you're achieving your vision, you come up with a series of hypotheses, which we call the sprint plan, what we believe will deliver this, this sprint or this week, and then you validate it at the end with either a showcase or a sprint review, which means did we actually achieve what we thought and has that moved us closer to our goal and has our goal shifted? So therefore it's a series of steps Uh, The term scrum is probably a distraction for people from New South Wales who know what rugby is, Uh, but it was invented by two Americans who probably thought it was closer to a huddle. Oh, okay. Uh, But but what they actually meant is it doesn't matter who in the team does the work, it matters whether the team's in control of the ball or, in this case, in control of the work. So they then had a daily meeting where they would check in with each other to say, are you under control? And the questions they ask each day are essentially around, will we achieve our sprint goal or should we course correct? And they are usually, what have I done today? What am I doing tomorrow? And what's stopping me? Or what am I worried might stop me? And if you look at that, it's exactly what nurses do in a shift change. What happened on my shift, what to expect on yours. Mm. It's exactly what to do in uh, firefighting where you stop and say, where are we at? What, what are our risks? So it's very much based, again, on trying to predict what we know about the uncertainty and take a small feedback loop until we check again. 
Right. So we have a sprint plan and then uh, a validation at the end of the sprint to see if we achieved our goals. And we have a series of checkpoints along the way to say, am I able to do what I thought I was doing? Am I on track? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's one more called a ritual or a ceremony or a meeting, which is what did we learn from that? So at the mm-hmm. end of each sprint, you look back and say, what's working for us and what's not? Right. The same as the ideal student uh, each week would go through the course and then look back and saying, how did my study habits work? Sure. So that's essentially the structure of Scrum, mm-hmm. uh, but it has a few other artefacts like a definition of done, how will we know this is finished? Mm-hmm. And it has some roles, and one of the myths of Scrum is you can only have three roles Okay. because they say there are three roles. Sure. Uh, and one of them is the product owner whose job is to understand the purpose. So if we want to validate we're achieving our goal and if the team want to know what it is, it it is sensible to have one person who owns that, not necessarily because they're a genius, but it means everyone can collaborate with them. Mm -hmm. So they say that if a team is going to be successful, they must have one person who understands the goal and is accountable for it. Then they have the title Scrum Master, which you could call a mixture between an executive assistant Mm -hmm. uh, whose job is to do the administration to help the team get their work done, but they're also an agile coach. Uh, and their job is to help the team work out how to work better together. Mm. So the team might meet in a retrospective, but they might form bad habits of uh, not trusting the people at the other office or doing work ineffectively. So the scrum master is there to help people understand how to get their work done better, and the product owner is to understand whether they're achieving the right outcomes. Mm -hmm. The only other title then is developer, Mm -hmm. which then became team member, Uh, So people would think you can't have a technical writer or a BA or a tester. But what they literally meant was other roles in the team depend on context. If you're making a movie, you need a script writer and a director. If you're Mm -hmm. doing software, you need a developer and potentially a BA and tester. Um, So where Scrum works well, there's often a third role, which is technical lead or technical coach, who is teaching people how to do their job better. So there might be a BA mentoring people in requirements. Uh, but according to Scrum, there's no half-done work. The BA can't say they're finished if they've finished doing their requirements, which are often called stories. Mm. Uh, but the tester can't say that they've done their job if they found defects and the developers were wrong. The team together achieve their goal or they don't. Right. Um, right. So the idea is not that you can't have different roles. It's that the roles don't have their own objectives. Everybody's objective is to achieve the same goal each sprint. And the goal of each sprint is to achieve the same objective for the organization or the customer. Mm-hmm. So Does that I, make sense to me? Yeah, absolutely, James. So uh, yeah, th- I keep going back to what you said earlier about the focus of Scrum is in building a team. So if you build a good team, a cohesive team, uh, a self-organized team, that's half the job done. And and they just uh, and they just and, and then you just make sure that the team tries to achieve the vision and also keep taking stock of the vision whether they're heading in the right direction uh, at, at uh, frequent uh, intervals. So yeah, that that, that yeah. makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I I have a few uh, you know lingering questions here. So. Again, these could uh, these could seem very pedantic to you, but since we are <laughs> no, no. If you ever work with people who are good at Scrum, uh, 
they typically are extremely pedantic. Okay. <laughs> so, so you can do whatever you want, but do it this way right now. So. <laughs> um, uh, James, I, I was wondering, so how how strict are these, you know, uh, uh, the roles and the ceremonies? Uh, is is mm. this, again, a template that uh, any organization could pick and use uh, and, you know, modify to their context? Or how sacrosanct are these, uh, you know, roles and ceremonies in Scrum? Yes. That's a really excellent question. Uh, many of the principles of Scrum exist in nursing, looking after patients. They existed, uh, there was a guy called Rockefeller who almost applied Scrum to his organisation of drilling for oil. Um, but I would say Scrum is actually a model which is perfect to be applied to an imperfect world. So when some people adopt Scrum, they use jargon of shuhari, but what they mean is do Scrum properly and then when it fails, we'll learn why it failed and fix it. Mm. So they would say do Scrum correctly or don't do it. Uh, but they don't mean this is the right solution. They call it a framework because, I mean, let's start with this and in four weeks or six weeks we'll know why it doesn't work. Right. Uh, it may be that we have a stand-up but half our team are in the Ukraine uh, or Switzerland and they're in a different time zone so it's not working. Mm. So they try to start with a baseline and improve. Right. When you look at a lean uh, thing later in the course, though, I think what people will often say is don't start with a perfect model. Start with where the team is at, mm. in which case what you would do as an agile coach or scrum master is observe the team doing their work and then look at the toolkit of scrum and other sources and say which of these tools will solve the biggest problem we have mm -hmm. remove that constraint for two weeks or four weeks. Mm -hmm. But what must be there, if you're calling it scrum, yes. is you're making the work transparent to everyone so they can actually understand it, whether it's out of control or not mm. and you're inspecting and adapting or applying the scientific method to predict right. something testing it and then correcting your course mm -hmm. so where people misapply scrum they often do a series of requirement scrums a series of development scrums and really they're doing waterfall but they're naming it something different right right but if but the basics of scrum are the work must be transparent so we can manage it we must test every hypothesis, including code, including the customer use, including our goal. And the rest of it is a toolkit to do it more effectively. Right. Wonderful. I think that uh, that, that clarifies a lot, uh, James. In fact, uh, this week we are looking at uh, the case study of Spotify. There's a very popular uh, two-part video on YouTube uh, that talks about how Spotify has adapted Scrum values and, you know, again, inserted their own uh, context, uh, contextual values into the, uh, into the mix. Um, and I see a lot of uh, what you see about transparency being reflected in their practice as well. And then that seems to be the key focus uh, focus here. Um, great. So uh, I would uh, I, I would love uh, I would love to spend some time talking about uh, you know uh, team culture. So transparency is definitely one value in a Scrum team. Mm -hmm. How does how does it uh, you know what what is it like to work in a team? Uh, operating uh, with, with these, uh, you know, driving principles and values. So could you give us a sense of uh, team culture, uh, you know, when students, you know, get out there and, and yeah. join uh, industry? Oh, how does it, how, how, how is it working for a, uh, how is it working in an agile team uh, with, you know, who are following some of these principles and values? 
So I'll, I'll differentiate, differentiate between a mature agile team and an immature one. Okay. Uh, what your graduates will often find is that there's an expectation in Scrum or Agile generally that everyone in the team will know the work you're doing and that they will be able to observe whether you've done a good job or a bad job and you'll be able to justify your work to them every day. Uh, but that's based on the assumption that the system is wrong and you're trying to do the right thing and so therefore making your work transparent will help you. In a mature agile team, people will have learned that they can be horribly behind on Monday and doing a good job on Thursday. So they've learned that it's not micromanaging them, it's micromanaging the work so they can be in control of it. Mm. In an immature team, people either correct each other's work because they believe it's about critiquing each other or they're not keen on explaining their work to others. Uh, so working in a scrum team, working in an agile team generally, as a business analyst or a developer or a tester, your role is less pure. You're collaborating and building your role with others and it may be different this week to in six weeks. So it's far less predictable in that respect, but you get a better sense of what everyone in your team is doing and therefore you typically feel more like you're part of the group. And since you're part of the group, it's better for morale and you know that people have your back and you know if you've made a mistake, it was only two mm. days of being on the wrong track. Mm. Uh, also, in a fairly mature agile team, there's a fantastic amount of tacit knowledge. Everyone in the team knows what's going on, which then creates a danger that there's no um, explicit knowledge to hand over to others. So in a stable team, that can be great, but you'll often find when a mature, even agile team hands work over to someone else, they can't hand over everything they know because there was no documenting and capturing on the way. So some teams now have a instruction designer, technical uh, writer, or a business analyst whose job is not so much to capture the requirements coming in, but to manage the knowledge that can be So that is all that we have for you today. Thank you for listening and we hope that you will join um, us again soon. The other thing people will find in agile teams, though, is you're far clearer on the purpose and what's changed and what's not. So when change happens, it's explicit. So teams actually feel more in control of it. Mm. However, in a inexperienced agile team, uh, people will find that they're having meetings on top of the work, each of those things I talked about, like planning, and they're being spread between multiple teams and their cognitive load for their brains is spending too much time trying to work out which team they're working with today. Mm. Whereas in a mature agile team, you might move between teams, things might change, but you're always pausing to reflect and understand what you're doing. So ironically, the pace of an agile team can be slower than the pace of other teams. Wow. Uh, waterfall projects tend to start slow and finish fast. And I always think the last piece of a waterfall project is always a sprint exactly like you would do in Scrum or Agile. Um, but in an um, Agile team, you pick a sustainable pace. The danger is people believe they can work longer hours than they can and that they can stress themselves more than they can. But a Scrum Master or Agile coach helps them work at the pace where they can build something they can maintain mm -hmm. and they can re-energise the team as they go. So it's more like a good student studying each week rather than when I was at UNSW and I studied the week before the exam <laughs> and then found out there was a lot of knowledge I didn't have. Uh, 
or I would find myself studying things which weren't in the curriculum because I found some of the subjects so interesting, interesting. in my master's degree, which was great learning. <laughs> um, but I had to have those ceremonies bringing us back. So in an agile team, there seems to be less predictability at first, but once you get your rhythm, you find out mm. that there's a real comfort in the check-in with each other. There's a real, we know what's going on, and if something doesn't make sense, it gets aired sooner. Mm. Thanks, James. I think I think those distinctions that you made between uh, a mature team and an immature and inexperienced team uh, was really great. And in fact, I was speaking to uh, one of my students who, uh, you know, spent some time in a a graduate BA role in an agile team, and they were quite overwhelmed by the fact that there was so little documentation, and they had to get across. Uh, you know, they had to quickly come to speed with some of the intricacies of the problem domain, and they, you know, had no idea how to go about doing that. So yes. and I could perfectly relate to some of those anxieties uh, students could have if they're probably, you know, put in an inexperienced agile team uh, where there's not a lot of uh, documentation to go with. And I guess that's one of the things that, uh, you know, teams get wrong. Correct me if, I, if I'm wrong. Uh, whereas an agile uh, you know, mindset tells, you know, you prioritize X over Y does not mean, you know, get rid of yes. Y altogether. Uh, you know, that seems to be here. Uh, uh, it's a critical be... point because there's a line in the agile manifesto that says we believe in working software over comprehensive documents. And if you think about it, the manifesto is a document. So it would be foolish to say we believe in no documents. Uh, but I've heard people refer to the document as evidence that you don't use documentation. What they really said is documentation should serve a purpose. It should help the team understand or it should help the product be supported. So therefore, it should depend on context. Right. Uh, there's a company in Sydney called ResMed who internally don't believe they do brilliant agile, but I believe they do very good agile. Okay. But they're in medical technology and they will never release anything that's not exceptionally well documented, both for the doctors, for the nurses, for the patients, and they've validated each experiment they've done to prove everything mm -hmm. because the cost of failure is death. Yeah. Uh, whereas there are other companies like Facebook that say move fast, break things, but in their product, the documentation is embedded in the product for the developers. Mm -hmm. So they don't need a separate source of truth. Sure. So in a mature agile team, the team will build their knowledge and work out how to capture it and hand it over iteratively as part of their sprints mm -hmm. or as part of their continuous development. Yeah. Uh, and in an immature team, they will think, let's do our documentation when we have time and it will be the least important thing and therefore never done. Mm -hmm. And then it's not just the new person who gets worried. The other people have a false sense they know what's going on. Mm -hmm. When something goes wrong, they don't know where to start. Right. So that's one of the symptoms of a team that could get into trouble in Agile mm. is they've lost their understanding of what they're building or what the customer is doing. Okay. Whether it's because of a lack of documentation or a lack of standards, it's a lack of structured information that they can access. Okay, okay. Great, thanks, James. Uh, I, I realized that we did not cover one thing I thought we should cover um, earlier in your discussion of an Agile Scrum team, the difference between a Scrum Master and an Agile Coach, uh, yes. how, how do the two roles uh, differ and what are the overlaps? If you could uh, spend some time telling us. Uh, yeah, I can be very clear on this uh, because there's a big misunderstanding. In some organizations, they've mistaken something like Scrum or Agile for an organizational structure. 
So they put in place roles, and in those organisations, I won't reveal their names, but I might use names like PacWest or WealthCommon. Um, Somebody will be a team member, a BA, then they'll become a BA scrum master, which means they're working with one team. And then they might become a delivery manager, which means they're working as a scrum master across multiple teams to align the work, or an agile coach, which means they're teaching the teams. In reality, a scrum master and an agile coach are the same thing. Uh, the difference, though, would be a scrum master would be an expert in using a particular flavour of agile scrum. Mm. So you could also be an XP coach right. or a lead developer, um, whereas an agile coach would be theoretically conversant with multiple approaches. Mm. But it's not a seniority seniority thing. So in practice in a lot of companies, there's a scrum master works with one team. Often they're a member of the team doing another role like developer or BA. And an agile coach teaches the teams, coaches them, uh, and is not accountable for delivery, Okay. Uh, which is a strength and a weakness. It means you can coach people, but it also means sometimes the team are listening to someone who's focused on delivery and someone else talking academically about how they could improve. Um, but really, if you encounter people talking scrum master or... Uh, Agile coach, the most important thing to do is ask, what do you mean by that in this context? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because an agile coach could be coaching an organisation, they could be mentoring the team leader, they could be a scrum master for the team. It's a more generic term. Mm -hmm. A scrum master means they're applying the scrum values, methodology, and adapting it to the context. Okay. Great. I think think that... uh, uh clarifies uh, the difference between the two uh, roles James thank you so much um, yeah moving on to the next uh, you know block of discussion James I was uh, you know you, you mentioned a few times that uh, you know some organizations get it wrong uh, which is you know get agile wrong mm. um, so for an organization that wants to be you know become agile or adopt an agile mindset uh, you know what are some of the roadblocks what do, what do they need to look out for and how best can they make this transition uh, from a traditional mindset to uh, a more agile mindset? It would be great if you could start by describing uh, what mindsets uh, organizations, the, the incumbent mindset that typically that you see in organizations that are trying to be more agile. If you could spend some time on that, that would be great. So one of the challenges when we say agile is a mindset is it's almost become a catchphrase and no one asks what you mean by mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll say agile is a mindset and everyone goes good and then you think yes but if we don't know what it is how can we create it um, if you look at the principles of the agile manifesto you could call that a mindset because it's a, an encapsulated set of attitudes and sense making so we can make sense of the world by assuming people are more important than process mm-hmm. uh, but Also, if you're a student, you might have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. You might have a belief that feedback will lead to improvement, a growth mindset, or that feedback is a criticism of me, which will inhibit your learning. So when we say an agile mindset, early on, it typically meant the lean mindset applied to product development or knowledge work. Mm. Uh, And lean was very big on trusting the team, uh, reaching perfection iteratively, never giving up on perfection. Um, So in the early days, the danger was that people who understood Agile understood it to be not the current organisational mindset and therefore it's an excuse for cowboys and I was one of them doing that and they would be unleashed 
and they would outperform because they had a, a culture within their team of being trusted by the executive, trusting each other and handpicking who to be in the team. But that's got nothing to do with Agile or Waterfall. That's just if you have the right people in the team and they're trusted by management mm-hmm. and they have access to the resources they want, they should succeed. Uh, nowadays, a lot of organisations have a mindset based on do not fail and they have a mindset and there's reasons for that. If you're a politician and you backflip, people tell you off. What you should say is I have learned something since the bushfires, whatever it is. And managers have to report to executives and executives have to report to the market. So there's a belief that our predictions must be correct. So the challenge there is Agile says your predictions are wrong. The sooner you learn, the better, which means you have to actually courageously make predictions in a format like a scientist that can be proven wrong. But what a lot of organisations want to do is be fuzzy about their commitments so they won't be wrong, which inhibits their ability to learn. Uh, The other thing is in Agile there's a culture that the team are in it together. There are no high performers or low performers. Uh, So you'll look at developers and business analysts and some people were born to do the work and they're exceptional. But outside the team, nobody cares. It's what did the team deliver together. But a lot of organisations have a mindset of um, looking after high performance, having people internally competitive, and that will inhibit their ability for people to be team members because they'll want to measure their own performance, not the performance of the team. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the more recent times as well, a lot of people have gone agile because they've seen evidence that it's worked elsewhere and they can go faster. But rushing means that they're mistaking activity for progress. What agile says is you should actually measure your progress, uh, whether it's through analytics, whether it's through perceptions, and then you should validate and improve which actually slows you down initially. Mm-hmm. If you look at a lot of teams going agile in technology, their first issue almost always seems to be there's a bottleneck in testing. Mm-hmm. But there's not. It's that they're doing their testing at the end and that's not how agile works. Mm-hmm. And once they fix testing, if they do, there's usually a bottleneck in business analysis. Mm-hmm. But there's not. It's just it takes longer to understand a problem than to solve it. So um, organisations going agile often fall into the trap of seeing agile as another example of what they're already doing. So a stand-up is a status report. A showcase is a um, – it's not a validation of our work. It's a proof to management we're doing a good job and must therefore look good. Mm-hmm. And therefore they start applying their old thinking based on fear of failure, um, which is valid if you're a doctor and don't kill people. But actually, if you're a doctor, you have to learn how to do an operation before you do it. Mm. And they have a representing individuals over teams um, when Agile requires the whole team to be in it together. Mm. And therefore, it requires what we call psychological safety, which means confidence to be able to make decisions. But also in Agile, there's a huge risk of confirmation bias and groupthink because everyone in the team has an opinion, so assume it's correct. You look for evidence and it supports your opinion. But organisations find it very hard to adapt a more scientific approach to say, how would we know we're wrong? Mm. And these aren't um, easy things to change. It's not that people are stupid. It's that they've optimised to operate in their old way. Yeah, yeah. And now their old way of working is in some cases still true, but also their own experience is now holding them back because the evidence of an agile team going well 
is often the same evidence you'd see in a waterfall project about to fail. So that is all mm. that we have for so you today. I'll start seeing Thank you for listening. The team, I'm and sure hope what's that going on. Well. In fact, that's a maturity of team forming, mm. and therefore they'll intervene to course correct and make things predictable when, in fact, Agile is trying to create variants to learn from. Mm. And when you get to design thinking, I think you'll understand that better because even Agile people struggle when they see design thinking yes. uh, because it's it's pure that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, James, uh, I, I was curious to know, so uh, if you could, uh, you know, draw, uh, draw on your experience and tell us about what are some of the things that organizations get right in their transition? So what have you seen commonly and what are the patterns that you see in organizations that have, uh, you know, made the transition pretty well? And there are some. Uh, one of the things is there's sometimes a huge crisis uh, like COVID-19 that caused them to get their backs against the wall and then they had no choice but to be agile. Mm. But let's assume they don't want to have a crisis. Yeah. Uh, there are some patterns. One of them is they take an agile approach to becoming agile. They don't try to get it right first time. Mm. They try to start building into their process. Um, the other thing is that they support team learning so people in the team actually have some space to pause and reflect uh, rather than falling into the trap of mistaking activity over progress and just being really busy. Uh, the other thing they start doing well is that um, in Agile you might hear the term user stories and it actually comes from, like many indigenous cultures, sharing knowledge through stories, not through documentation. It actually okay. means getting a shared understanding. Okay. But that slows the team down. So I think one of the first things is the organisation has to create psychological safety and they allow the team to actually slow down to share information when in, in the past it was probably quicker for one person to do their job. At the same time, I think the other pattern is they don't see Agile as an end in itself. They see it as a means to an end. So they define a goal they want to achieve, like better engagement, uh, better time to market, and then they challenge the Agile methodology to give it to them. And they also take Agile with a grain of salt. We talked about waterfalls still having a place. There are some problems that you don't need collaboration. There are other problems where you need to analyse up front. So they apply an Agile toolkit uh, with room for other toolkits to be a part of it. They don't replace everything. They build on what they already have and then iteratively move towards Agile. Okay. And they also have to align whether it's Scrum values or Agile values to their organisational values. Mm. If you're a hospital or an operating theatre, you may have very different values to if you're an HR consultancy working with people um, or a startup, but you have to have values and they have to align with the Agile values. Oh, okay, great. I'd say those are the main things. People okay. will say the usual things like you need management buy-in. <laughs> I actually think the main thing you need is team members to learn the value of it so they start doing it right. to get their work done, not do it on top of their work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Great. Uh, thanks, James. Um, yeah, uh, now coming to the question that I had in mind earlier. Um, so one of the blockers could be, I mean, this is the sense that I'm getting that 
Well, um, you know, complex projects, big projects, maybe agile is not suited. Let's let's yeah. let's you know stick to the way that we've been doing it. Uh, you know, we we you know there's a lot more predictability this way. So, uh, how how do uh, you know agile? Uh, you know, how do how, you know how do complex projects get implemented? How can uh, could you give us an example uh, if you can from your experience um, about uh, you know complex projects getting implemented the agile way? Yes. Yes. So, um, some of the projects I've worked on are not glamorous. They're things like replacing legacy systems. Yep. And everybody always wants to replace, whether it's a mainframe, whether it's a client service system, they want to replace it in one go and they want to do it properly. So, they start by analysing what they're doing. Or a knowledge management project, they start analysing what they're doing, but the world is changing faster than their analysis so they can never get there. Mm. Um, the way Agile will deal with the complexity, though, say if I was looking at my um, legacy replacement project, uh, when we did that, we knew that we had to convert data from systems to new systems. We knew we had to replace a whole bunch of systems. We totally failed to understand the number of clients who had embedded all the faults of our system into their own client side. And therefore, if we replaced it perfectly, no one would have been able to use it. There's also a risk that we'll redesign the old system and replace it. But in a complex system, uh, we need to roll out something useful to people. We can't just roll out small pieces and hope they'll adopt it when there's no value to them. Mm -hmm. So whether we're doing design thinking or whether we're doing technical spikes analysis, we have to start with a bunch of hypotheses and work out how to test them uh, cheaply. And if I had a little whiteboard here, I'd draw a triangle. We have to have at the top of the triangle say what's given. We're taking that for granted. We are going to replace a legacy system. We are going to maintain IT security protocols. And then you have to have a section in the middle, which is the decisions we're making now. And then what decisions are we going to make later? And in Agile, you try to push a lot of the decisions out till later when you've learned more. But then, of course, there's a danger that you've embedded the wrong things. Mm-hmm. In waterfall, people try to make all the decisions up front to enhance planning. Uh, so in our legacy replacement project, our first step was to go right back to what the users are using it for mm-hmm. and then to start finding some things that the users used. In our case, we found what do they do the most often rather than what's the most important thing in the system. Mm-hmm. And we started actually duplicating work so they could use the new system, but it had to draw data on the old system, which was a nightmare. But it allowed us to start giving some value to customers early and for them to start telling us what they needed. we then created a unfortunate false perception that we could do things quickly because we were building a front end quickly nice. and the back end wasn't catching, catching up. Yeah. So we had to come back and have disappointing conversations and say some problems are hard. It's not agile or waterfall. Some problems are just hard. Let's be realistic. And then we found out we were going to take five years to replace our system. That was unacceptable. So we had to go back and challenge our assumptions again and again. Mm-hmm and start challenging trade-offs, which meant that we had to involve some representatives of the customers and the executives, and we really needed the team to share their expertise. And then we went through a series of what-if analysis. Uh, We went down some incorrect paths, but because we had measures in place based on we predict this, we were able to pull out quickly. So we still made mistakes. We reduced the blast radius of those mistakes. And we started getting people used to the idea when we make a mistake, we'll fix it. 
and what is the real priority, what is real value. It probably took us a month or two into the project to actually realise what the value was because we thought we were reducing the cost of the legacy systems. Mm-hmm. But it turned out to be the real value was the integration so that people could do something easily. Right. So it, it turned out even our initial hypothesis replaced legacy systems was wrong. <laughs> there were some legacy systems that could have lasted for a century. Mm-hmm. There are other ones which really, really, really were the problem. But we had to test and we had to validate and we had to learn. What it did mean, though, is a third of the way through our project, we actually got a big shock. The CEO left and the new CEO came in with totally different goals. Um, But fortunately for us, the work was either done or not. It wasn't Mm. in analysis ready to do. Mm. So we were able to say this is where we are now and we started a new project uh, but we were able to close off the old one first and continue our journey in roughly the same direction. Everyone thought it would be different, mm-hmm. but a lot of the same problems were nothing to do with CEO strategy. They were to do with ease of use, and they were actually to do with data integrity. So not the problems we thought we were solving. Right, right. Um, so we left a chunk of stable legacy systems behind mm-hmm. uh, because they were supportable. And then we found more and more security issues and more and more user issues. And so we almost turned into a production support team for the life of the project, mm-hmm. enhancing an existing system, chipping sure. away at it. Uh, but each step we took, we were building a stable basis to take the next step. Mm-hmm. So when the world shifted in a complex environment, we learned more each step, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So it was, yeah. it was a bit more painful than I described, but <laughs> everybody made the pain visible I think, and therefore able to deal with it. Okay, okay, great. Uh, thanks, James. Uh, you know, I was also uh, not sure what happened there. No, I'm still here, though. Okay. <laughs> yeah, somehow you disappeared from the main screen. Uh, anyway, James. Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, so that was, you know, one of the misconceptions, I would say, uh, when I speak to students, you know, okay, there's always this talk about, um, you know, Agile not being suitable for complex projects, but you've, you've, you've described how how agile can be applied uh, in, in those contexts as well, and that that also gets me curious uh, to pick your brain on what are the some of the more commonly held misconceptions about agile, and also maybe some of the uh, most commonly um, practiced misimplementations of agile. So, uh, if from your experience again, if you could you know just list out the top three that comes to your mind um, uh, around misconceptions. Are uh, you know about agile or agile-based methodologies? Uh, that'll yeah. be good to hear. I think the first one is that we'll go faster. Okay. Uh, if you look at any of the literature, it says we'll be faster and cheaper. Yeah. In fact, what I'll say is we'll learn faster. Mm. We'll go faster depending on the type of problem we're solving, or slower. Yeah. Um, the second is that um, teams will instantly be able to work together, and that they'll be able to make decisions based on the perceptions of the team. When in fact, to do Agile well, you need to independently validate the information or you need to understand how you're going to test things. Uh, so that would be the second one. And the key there is to build the testing as early as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third, I think, is very common at the moment, possibly less common than a couple of years ago, and that's that um, Agile done properly in one place will translate here. 
Mm. When in fact, to do Agile well, you have to learn to apply it in your own context. So every team is going to have a period of learning how to do their work, depending on their organisation's purpose and culture, depending on the people in the team and their relationships and skills. Mm. Uh, For example, co-located teams do well quicker in Agile, but that's not Agile, that's co-located teams know each other personally. Um, the agile practices of Scrum are probably more important if you have a team in a different country because they build feedback loops into what you're doing. Mm. So I think the misconception is we do agile and we'll go faster. Mm. What actually happens then is people drop testing to go faster or they drop analysis to go faster uh, okay. and they make mistakes faster without learning. Whereas if we actually take a different approach, we want to learn faster, therefore we want feedback earlier, mm-hmm. then it's a lot tougher to get started. Sure. But you learn, you become effective a lot sooner. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Are, are there anything, any other misconceptions that you'd like to add to the top three or those were uh, pretty much, <laughs> there could be a long I think list. <laughs> used, I think a lot of people used to have the problem of agile zealots who believe that agile was correct. They didn't see it as a toolkit to solve a problem. Okay. Nowadays, I think there are a lot of people who assume they're doing Agile if they say they are. Uh, okay. So you'll go into a team as a graduate and they'll say we're doing Agile, but there'll be no validating, no transparency, and you'll know it just seems wrong. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. the misconception is because management want to be Agile by uh, using the word quick and easy of movement, that mm-hmm. the team will get that from Agile methodology straight away. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I guess uh, it also depends on the uh, context, as you were saying uh, earlier. So if it's, a, it's, if it's a more internal project where you are executing a, for a project for internal customer, um, vis-a-vis, yeah. uh, you know, if you're building products uh, for uh, an external customer, um, how how would I'm also curious to know, uh, James. So how would how would the customer's preference lean on your approach that you take? Uh, Very uh, how you know what's the influence there uh, on on teams and w- w- what if yeah. it is what if it runs counter to what the team culture is and the team value is? Well, uh, how do how do teams uh, uh, you know uh, how, how do teams resolve this? Attention? So some teams are in the government. Um, and the government use a tendering process Mm -hmm. and therefore they're almost forced to do waterfall to get their requirements done. Mm -hmm. Not because of team culture but because of legal obligations. They've defined what they're going to do in the tender. Mm -hmm. So for those teams what I would do is, I hate to say it, follow the tender process properly and get good requirements for a starting point Mm -hmm. but build into the contract the ability to iterate and then understand what decisions the team can make with their... Uh, peers in the other organisation. For other customer-based things, though, um, when you get to design thinking, I think it'll be clear to the students you can't do a not-agile approach Mm. because the design thinkers are are changing their mind every week because they're seemingly crazy. (laughs) But what they're really doing is the scientific method. They're saying, we believe people want this. Our evidence is they asked for it. Let's mm. test whether they would use it, yeah. and it turns out they don't use what they asked for. Yeah. So therefore, what you have to do is have the team break their work down into how do they support rapid prototyping and learning, mm. and how do they refactor or build their product mm. so that they're increasing the stability over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't matter whether it's a car or something else. So for some teams, they've got user experience and data analytics or customer focus groups mm-hmm. or even um, – user groups who are telling them what to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they still need an analyst to say what are the implications of that. Right. Uh, Other teams 
are dealing with an organisation that's got a waterfall mindset or they're dealing with customers who won't buy something until it meets all of the criteria mm. and therefore they can still use Agile but they have to be clear on when we speak to our customer, these are the expectations we set. Right. Then we'll adapt our Agile approach to only deal with the how we're going to build it, not what we're building. Mm-hmm. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, and one more, uh, yeah. a lot of Agile methodologies when you read the book, they've simplified it to explain how it works with one team. Sure. A lot of products now are integrated so heavily into other things yeah. that you have to almost think of the other teams as customers and you have to look at how you're going to meet each other's needs. Mm-hmm. And that can seem messy at first or um, you might ignore it because it's too hard, but you have to really understand at a local level what are we building, where does that fit into the bigger picture. Or you have to understand you're going to take time to make mistakes and learn that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, James. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, you've given us a lot of uh, in-depth insights into your uh, drawing on your experience as an Agile coach. I would like to, uh, you know, end the conversation with some tips that you'd like to share with students uh, who want to uh, start, uh, you know, working in an Agile team. You've already shared, you know, a couple of pointers uh, as to what what students can expect in mature teams uh, vis-a-vis more immature and inexperienced teams. uh, so how, how can students prepare themselves so that whichever context that they find themselves in, whichever team culture they find themselves in, uh, what would enable them to thrive uh, irrespective of the context? Okay. My first tip is to remain curious. Um, when I worked with business analysts in old school waterfall projects, the analysis was quite agile anyway. Mm. It was always a matter of how do we test and learn. Uh, So I'd say one thing is to build up the confidence that stupid questions are worth asking Mm. Um, because it's better to look stupid uh, than it is to turn out to be ignorant later on. Mm. Uh, My other one would be to take some time uh, early on when they're with a team to say what is going on, what do I think, and then reflect back later without the expectation that it will come good straight away because it often seems overwhelming when you do something new. If you're an experienced product owner, experienced business analyst, experienced architect, you still have that complete confusion every new time, but the experience tells you it's normal. Whereas when you're first starting, you feel like you're doing something wrong because it's overwhelming. The truth is it's overwhelming because the human brain can't take in that much context. So I'd say it's to set your own goals if you're goal-oriented. But for me, it's be curious, reflect on things, um, and try to work out how to get things under control so that the way the team's working helps me do my job and I understand how I'm helping others do their job. I'd also say that a lot of the techniques you use at university, uh, people forget as soon as they've left, but they're incredibly useful. And they can be done on a whiteboard or they can be done informally with a texter on a piece of paper. So I'd say try to use any models you've used, any approaches you've used, and just try and model it, even if it's waterfall or agile or design thinking, and saying, is that what I'm seeing here? Could I use this? Uh, Because then you'll be able to make sense of reality sooner. But I'd say be patient with yourself. Every time I go to a new organisation, it's overwhelming. Here I didn't know how to book meeting rooms, which you'd think I know. 
after so many years. Um, and when people said done, which is a standard agile term, I assumed they meant done. What they meant was we we are finished. And I was, so the same words mean different things. So, yeah, I guess be curious but also be forgiving that the process of learning involves discovering your ignorance. Yeah. That's not because you're dumb. There's a difference between ignorance um, and stupidity. And the difference is that ignorance is inevitable, I guess. Mm-hmm. Great, uh, great tips, uh, James. Uh, thank you so much for that. I'm sure, uh, yeah, I mean, um, also in addition to the tips, all the, all the experience that you shared, all the nuggets of insights that you shared with us, I'm sure uh, students will find that very useful. Uh, I would like to uh, thank you again for uh, coming here, uh, joining us on this uh, uh, podcast and uh, yeah, uh, hope to involve you again uh, in uh, another term perhaps if you're free to come uh, chat with us thank you again i'd love to i'd love to it's good for my ego but also uh if people have questions i'm happy if they give them to you i'm happy to feedback or stumble on um because i learn as much from the questions people ask anyway as i say you have to stay curious so thank you for having me oh my, my pleasure james So that is all that we have for you today. Thank you for listening and we hope that you will join us again soon.